morning, everyone. This is Chet Gray with Christian Hunters of America podcast. We have a very special guest in studio today. We have Brian Barney. Uh, for those of you, or the very few that don't know who he is, he is a uh, fellow podcaster. Um, he's the host of Eastman's Elevated. He writes a lot of articles for Eastman's Bow Hunting and Eastman's Hunting Journals. Does a lot of self-filming and is an all-around great guy and excellent hunter. So stay tuned for this episode of Elk Hunting with Brian Barney. Hey everyone, it's Chet Gray with Christian Hunters of America. I'm in studio today with my co-host, Mike Ornoski. How are you, Mikey? We are doing good. We are dragging from a fantastic elk seminar last night. And we have Brian Barney in studio, the one and only. Um, this episode's going to be coming out in August in preparation for the elk hunting that everybody's excited about. But we are here at the end of June. We just finished up our elk seminar that Brian was the keynote speaker on. How are you, Brian? Oh, I'm doing great. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Thank you for fitting us in in your extremely busy schedule. We know that time is precious with everything else you got going on, so we want to really, really appreciate you coming out here to uh, hot Arizona and uh, spending some quality time and educating everybody here on elk hunting. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, yeah, you guys got some real heat down here. This place is gnarly when you get off the plane. You can feel it. As soon as that's the worst part of going on vacation anytime in the summer is as soon as you come into Sky Harbor and those gates open and you're walking down the jetway, that, that heat hits you and you're like, yep, I'm back home. <laughs> um, there's very few people in Western hunting that probably haven't heard your name, but for the few that haven't, can you introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit about Brian Barney? Yeah, so um, my name's Brian Barney. Gosh, I moved to Montana about 21 years ago. So I was born and raised in Olympia, Washington, and um, went through school and fell in love with, with bow hunting and hunting and was just looking for some more opportunities. So moved to Montana and just absolutely immersed myself. And so I'm just a blue collar guy. I'm a carpenter, but I fell in love with bow hunting. And so I was able to structure my life around that and, and, and get a lot of experience and build my knowledge base and then able to take that to different states and different habitats and, and able to be consistently successful and started writing about it and then uh, Eastman's gave me a chance to write some pro staff articles and I think they um, you know I, I'd been published a handful of times and and they said well what about writing a pro staff article for us and I said yeah it'd be great and they said well why don't you send over a couple ideas and we'll pick through those and we'll get you an article and I think the next day I sent them 40 ideas you know I, I had all this information that was spinning around my head that I really wanted to get out to guys that that it helped make me successful on on public land, do-it-yourself elk hunting, you know, and and, and I, I just learned, you know, when I immersed myself in it, I just learned that there there was no limit to what I could accomplish or what I could do. Success rates run like 6% with a bow and arrow in Montana, but, but the harder I worked at it, the more I achieved and the more it meant to me and the more I fell in love with it and fell in love with the entire process. And so from there, uh, I've just been all in. Eastman's has given me a lot of great opportunities like the podcast and, and filming and writing. And so uh, I'm just living my dream. I mean, a 20-year-old me would be super impressed. You know, I get to hunt a bunch and um, uh, multiple elk tags a year and, and deer tags. And so I just absolutely love it. 
do you come from the stereotypical family where a father figure or grandpa introduced you into hunting or did you fall into it yourself with friends or how did that come about? Yeah. So uh, my dad's a diehard hunter and so nobody bow hunted in our family, but everybody hunted and we had a cabin that sat a couple hours away. And so we would chase uh, Roosevelt's and blacktails and, and we'd meet up there and it, you know, they taught me some good lessons and I, I really enjoyed it and liked it, but I had other things going on when I was young. You know, I had a wrestling that I fell in love with and, and wrestling taught me a lot of these lessons about hard work and discipline and things of that nature. Uh, and, and so, you know, I definitely, my family introduced me to it. I got a bow when I was the age of, of 14. And so I would hunt a bit, but it was really like after high school when I lost that wrestling, like I didn't have anything that I was really passionate about. Us guys, we need passion in our life, like something we love to do that isn't tied to, to monetary gains or money or it isn't work, you know. And so uh, I, I was kind of looking for a replacement from wrestling that I loved. And so I uh, just got into hunting. And the, and the further I got into it, the more I realized, like, how much was there, the backcountry hunting and, and, and being able to get back to the most remote, wild places in the lower 48 and chase these kidder, critters around. And so it was just a perfect place for my passion. And I needed something right at that point in my life. And, and as I found it, it seems like every year I love it more and more. There's more anticipation, anticipation for it. So uh, I, I just fell in love with it. And that hasn't changed from day one and I think I'm more excited for this season than I was last season or the season before so yeah it's just a a great place for my effort I could see I wrestled a little bit but nothing in high school and I can see and just in sports in general um you know everything's a team sport you you do rely on other people but wrestling in and of itself is you're you have yourself and only yourself when you're in the middle of that mat and having that same kind of determination and that mental fortitude to persevere like I got no one else backing me up right now so I could see how that level of competition um, fosters the the deep desire to, to go farther to go harder than anyone else in that backcountry that is correct so I, I grew up as an athlete and love sports and and I think that's where I my hunting skills really went into the sports athlete inside me because it's about the accomplishment. And it's interesting. I'm, I'm, my question to you is, and I, you kind of touched on it last night, is every year I'm, I'm, as these guys call it, I'm very successful. They always say, hey, you, every time you go out, you shoot something, harvest something, and it seems like you build on it and build on it. But to me, it's almost like it's the next step of accomplishment. It's almost like I set my goals on two different things or whatever it may be, and that's my passion. Then when I accomplish that, then I'm – it's almost like I check that box, you know, in this essence, then I go in and I pick out the next goals and I kind of go on and through hunting, it's almost like it becomes natural. It's like it gets easier and easier and it's almost like second nature. And I take a lot of new hunters out and they're so excited for that first opportunity to get their first harvest or whatever it is. And, and I see that excitement where sometimes I forget that I was in their same shoes 20, 25 years ago. And I think, listen to you talk about how you, a lot of people are saying, Hey, you've are you use the reference that a lot of people say this or that, and they may have seen this, but you always go back to as my personal experience, and this is what I can say because this is what I physically, personally did, and this is what I learned from it. And I think that goes a super long ways. 
Oh yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, that's exactly right. Is we're we're all on different paths of our journey, and and um, comparison is the thief of all happiness. Comparing yourself to guys on social media or guys on on Instagram that are showing a highlight reel, it can be rough for guys, and especially new hunters that are getting into it. You know, and so yeah, we're all on our own journey, and I think it's important to realize that. But yeah, I'm I'm 20 years into this journey of committing to my bow and arrow and working tirelessly every single day to make sure I'm prepared for season. And and I just learned these lessons about discipline and, and hard work. And, and, and it actually carries over into my normal life. Like it, it doesn't do me any good to be a great hunter and be a horrible husband or a horrible father if my wife leaves me because I hunt too much. So, so to me, like it taught me these lessons uh, not only about hunting and hard work and discipline, but then I'm able to carry them into my everyday life, into being the, the best husband I can be and being the best father I can be. And it's like, if I train tirelessly and I'm running every single day, well, I got enough energy to go up and do the dishes or chip in here or there. And so it's really carried over to make me the man that I'm really proud to be uh, carried over into my work life. I own a small construction company and and doing what I say I'm going to do and and working hard and, 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 and building building a quality house that I can put my name behind. Like uh, hunting has taught me so many different lessons and it's just because I, I fell in love with it, worked hard at it. And then those lessons just seem to carry over mm-hmm. to my everyday life. So yeah, man, it's been a great journey. Absolutely. Now, now I would uh, expand on that. Cause I know I was in the, the room list when you made, you start, that's how you started your seminar last night was you talked about your wife and being a husband and father and all that stuff. And we had some ladies in there and I, I saw some elbows hitting some of their, their guys <laughs> saying, Hey, you know, pointing up and, I got home late last night. It was about almost midnight. My wife was there helping out. And she says, hey, you heard what he said, right? Don't forget those words. But it's true. It, it is a, it is the foundation of what we are as, as individuals, as, as men, as leaders, you know, our households. And hunting is one aspect that we give a lot of passion. It's what drives us. But we also have all this responsibility of everything else in life. And if we let that unbalance, that's where a lot of bad things normally happen. And I think that was a, a fantastic way that you started your seminar is putting that reality in, saying, hey, this is your foundation. This is almost like your steps of, of, of being a man. But then when you go in hunting, this is how you want to be as a hunter. But then don't forget to bring all those same attributes and all that effort back into your family's life which is pretty incredible, really. Man, that's spot on. Like how you do one thing is how you do everything. So you can't just be a good hunter. Like you have yeah. to be good at all facets of life. And and if you guys have ever been on a hunt where you have problems in the household, because problems arise, like uh, maybe not with your marriage, but maybe your, your water pump goes out, or maybe like you're just not hunting as effective and as, fit, as efficient as you can, like your mind's somewhere else. So if you don't take care of your family stuff, if you don't take care of your wife and you're in the field and you're worried about that, uh, you're not going to be consistently successful. You got too much on your mind. You, you need to, once you go on a hunt, uh, you need to be focused on that hunt. And to be focused, you got to take care of all that stuff in your life, whether it's work stuff, family stuff. And, and yeah, I like to start the speech that way, uh, uh, really working hard to make sure my wife's happy, make sure that, I, that, I, that I'm speaking her love language, that I'm planning family vacations, that I'm spending quality time with them. And a big part of that is like just being engaged with my family, not being a drone, not being tired when I get home from work and sitting on the couch and watching the TV, like really in engaging with them. We sit down for dinner every single night. And, and that time that I spend engaged with them, you know, I, I get them on board for my goals and, and my journey in this backcountry hunting. And so there's no animosity there. Like uh, uh, she supports me 100% in my hunting endeavors. And it, it's the reason 
why I've gotten to where I've gotten, why I've, why I've been so successful is just from their support. Absolutely. And it's funny she brought that up because I, I kind of forgot about it as we were talking about that back and forth. She's like, remember that time you drew that strip tag? Because I, I finally drew a strip tag. And you know anybody that knows in Mule Deer, if you get a strip tag in Arizona, I mean, it's a high pressure. And on day three, my water main broke at the house. And my house flooded in two of the rooms. And, oh, no. and I didn't know for... Till I got back a week and a half later, she never said it. She took care of it, called people, and had it all fixed. And because she knew that hunt was made that much more to me, she knew that I would drive eight hours to get back home and do that. But again, I think it's building that foundation on the early side of that mutual respect and love and the care that she understood the magnitude. If she made that phone call, it would ruin my hunt. And that whole mindset and the mental side of it that you talked about in this, the seminars when you're hunting, it actually becomes a lot of a mental game. And I think that's where that foundation of the family is so important. Mm-hmm. Whatever that. You know, that foundation you have if you're married or if you're dating someone or or whatever it is or you're having, you know, mom and dad or, you know, if, if you're younger and you're, you're still living at home or whatever, I think that's a huge thing of that overall respect that allows us to be great hunters. Yeah, sure. absolutely. What a great wife to take care of all that stuff <laughs> while you're gone on a strip tag. Yeah, yeah. that's uh, uh, that that's what we're all uh, uh, searching for, for sure, is a good supporting woman like that. But yeah, it takes doing our part, for yeah. sure. And and like right now, we talk about all the prep for season, the the shooting and the, the, the running and the mental game. But taking care of your stuff at home is probably the most important thing right now as we're in, you know, late July and coming into August, you know, is to make sure everything's dialed in. Because then you're just going to enjoy your time out there as well. Uh, you got your responsibilities taken care of. And I, I just can't, you know, as much as I, I envy or would like to be a hobo that just travels around and hunts and doesn't have much, like, uh, uh, too, you, you, you need to have uh, your finances dialed, need to make sure that your bills are paid, your family's taken care of. And so that's when I hunt at my best. Yep, absolutely. Me too. Same way. Have you, have you gotten your family involved or are your kids or wife avid outdoorsmen and hunters? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we do a lot of fly fishing together. And then we also do hunting together. You know, they do it more to spend time with me. And so, yeah, I've got both of my girls involved and we do these um, uh, these hunts, these adventure hunts every year that we'll kind of plan for. And, and it's really great to spend like this one-on-one time with my daughters, to have all this time traveling to and from, uh, to, to hunt hard. Like we have these in-depth conversations that, that we almost can't have at the house or we don't have at the house, but it's spending this quality time. So, yeah, they're involved. We go every year. My wife hunts a little bit. Uh, uh, we usually get her an antelope tag because we love antelope meat, and it's a, a little bit easier of a hunt. She doesn't want to kill herself out there. you know. She wants to spend some quality time with me, so we'll do an antelope rifle hunt with her. And then um, my daughters, they shoot archery, but you, you got to get a little bit of success so they know the payoff. And, and archery hunting is so difficult. Uh, so, so we usually choose a, a rifle hunt every year. So we've been doing like an annual uh, mule deer hunt where I do a one-on-one with the girls. And, and they have a lot going on with their sports, volleyball and track and basketball, their friends, their schoolwork. We got college coming up for my oldest daughter. So yeah. they got a ton going on. But it seems to be the right mix to plan like a tr- one trip a year. And so, yeah, I really enjoy it with them. Nothing, nothing replaces that. That's the thing. Like everybody knows that. They make sacrifices, and going out there with your family, experiencing those types of things with your kids can are, are irreplaceable. You can sit there and watch TV. You can do things at home, but being outside in God's country and enjoying all that, nothing can replace that. There's so much to be said. There's so many different lessons learned out there that school and a teacher, you know, in this instance, is, is the father figure or the mother figure, whoever's taking them out. But 
so many things are learned out there and experiences and the trials and tribulations of, you know, not taking an animal, not harvesting an animal or getting hurt and how you overcome those are lifelong lessons that will pay dividends in the future that, you know, a K through 12 may, you may not ever experience. So seeing those types of things, I remember, uh, I, not to quote him, but John McCain had, had once said, being the senator here in Arizona, that he always took Megan, his daughter, to Washington, D.C. because there's things that she could learn there and experience and see how politics work that you will never, ever be able to experience. And that kind of correlates, but it kind of doesn't. It's just the sense that you got to sometimes take them out of their environment. Yes, school is very important, but there's so much more to be learned outside of school that that are lifelong lessons as well yeah it's giving them adventure in their life you know and they know when they sign up with dad and i cater the hunts to them you know but it's still i want to push them you know and and uh to to be able to have these experiences like like leaders lead from the front and and by doing and so uh a bunch of the way i lead my girls is by example like going on these adventures so whether they they take up a, a, a bow hunting and really enjoy it throughout their lives maybe they meet a husband that bow hunts or they, they just uh, transpose these skills and this adventure into something that they love later in life. But, yeah, it's a gift to be able to share it with yep. them and, and uh, get them outside the classroom. And, and you're right, you're, you're learning all the time. And these are such great experiences for them to, to get out and to, to, to learn and to have these adventures out in nature. And I, I think they come back with a, a different mindset as well, almost changed from these adventures. So it is super important to, to plan these and get them out, you know, whether it's a, a rafting adventure down a river or a backcountry hunt or like we live right on a blue ribbon trout stream so we do like a lot of fly fishing where you know i can take the girls and their friends and we can go down the river and have a bunch of laughs and go catch trout and and just give them these experiences and then let them figure out what they like in life but at least they have this this base or this background you know where they get to learn where their meat comes from and and uh, get to have these adventures so yeah man it's a gift that's awesome can you talk a little bit about um Do you have to dial it back when you're because you are such an avid hunter and you go at a a thousand and ten percent when you're taking a newer hunter out or family member that may not have the same level of dedication or motivation? How do you dial that back down so that you're still having fun and they are still having fun? It's definitely a balance. Uh, I'm tough. I'm a pretty intense person in the mountains, you know, so I go pretty hard. And, and a lot of people, you know, they, um, uh, they're capable of so much more than they ask of themselves. So a lot of times it's out of the pan and into the fire, you know, it's, it's going for it. And public land hunting is tough. It takes a lot of effort just to give yourself a chance at success. So uh, a lot of these guys know what they're getting into if they go with me, like my dad, you know, so he tries to pick like the right hunts. He doesn't like to dive <laughs> into the middle of the wilderness anymore, but we can cater some hunts to him where we can right. still hunt hard. We can truck camp and then um, go hard throughout the day. So I cater them a bit and definitely have to cater it to the girls like they're they're not training 365 and and two it stops being fun for them they don't know the payoff like i do like uh me i you know 
I, I put everything into a hunt men, mentally and physically and, and been down to the last couple of days and grinded it out and killed a really nice six point. And so that payoff, that feeling that I felt uh, from putting everything into it, like, like I know what that payoff is. So I'm willing to walk through broken glass to feel it again. Not everybody has felt that payoff or knows that yet. And so uh, you do want them to have a positive experience. And so, yeah, I just try to taper it back a bit and uh, especially for the girls, but uh, for new hunters or for family members, they kind of know what they're getting into with me. And so, uh, we try to prepare as, as good as we can. And guys are training before they're hunting with me, you know, which is a good thing they should be, you know? So, uh, but, but I definitely struggle with that as, uh, trying to give a positive experience and still go hard. Awesome. Can you talk a little bit about your bow setup, uh, before we start getting into elk tactics and hunting? What do you, are you practicing or, or what are you shooting and uh, a little bit about that bow setup and mm-hmm. process? Yeah, so I shoot my best when I shoot a lot of arrows and everybody is different, but uh, I shoot arrows every single day. Uh, if not, I've got my training tool, like um, uh, I gave my bow to the Eastman's, I'm gonna meet them in Salt Lake City. So I've got two days without my bow. I'll still shoot 50 arrows just through my training release. And in a lot of my setup on my bow, like I like the the new technology, those Matthews shoot great for me. Uh, and I pick up a lot of things from from good shooters in indoor, outdoor, 3D, things of that nature, because those guys need to be accurate. They're trying to hit a small little X 30 times. And so uh, uh, for me, I, I want a, a precise bow that I can trust. And, and really, it's just running through my practice routine of shooting angles and shooting from my knees. And, and my setup as far as my bow, Matthews, 70-pound limbs. I like something I can pull comfortably, shoot uphill, shoot downhill. Uh, I shoot a, a maybe longer stabilizers than most guys. I shoot a 15 out front, 12 in the back. I add weight to my bow. Uh, the more weight you add, like heavy bows shoot really well. The aiming slows down on them. Uh, the the pin doesn't move as much. And I want the most forgiving setup I can when I'm shooting at an animal because it's, um you know, it's uneven terrain. It's not in my backyard shooting with flip-flops. It's uh, uneven terrain, uh, uh, shooting at a live animal. And, and you get that adrenaline rush, that adrenaline dump. And that is tied into our DNA and, and the survival of humans has been because of hunting. And so there's something real about that buck fever and being able to grab hold of yourself and execute a good shot. So for me, uh, it's just a lot of practice, good setup. I run a a fall away rest, those stabilizers. I run a slider sight. So, um, my bottom pin I can dial. So that bulls at 45 yards. I don't have to pin gap. I can dial right to 45, hold my pin on them, let it float and execute a good shot. But I, I put a lot of focus in my execution and in my mental steps of my shot, practicing that and then putting myself in high pressure situations, shooting with buddies, shooting these, um, these, these mountain shoots, you know, where you're riding the ski lift up and going down these real life scenarios. And so I put a lot of emphasis on that. And then just throughout the years, like, like the the biggest thing with archery to really move the needle is to make these small form changes because these small form changes are tough on our ego because we already shoot well and when you make a form change you get a little bit worse but then you get a little bit better than you were and you keep hitting these plateaus you drop your ego and you keep learning from these really good shooters and progressing your shooting to get it to a point where you can be the the, the best shot you can be and and that for me, making a quick, clean kill on an animal, executing a perfect shot, that means as much to me. That's as much of the trophy as the trophy itself. Absolutely. We we always preach that. Mike, Mike's mike been my mentee, or hunting mentor for the last quite a few years. And uh, 
rifle hunting or archery hunting. It's it's all about being ethical. We're not here to, uh, I mean, it, it is a trophy no matter what size animal, but we want a clean ethical shot. I'm not here and no no hunter. We're all conservationists at heart. We want that animal to have the least amount of suffering and to die as quickly and humanely as possible. Um, do you use that same bow setup for every animal or do you ever change things up uh, for 3D shoot or for for hunting or do you so that you minimize and have all that target training do you use that same bow and the same training techniques no matter where you're at or no matter where you're hunting whatever state it could be or whatever uh big game species you're going after mm-hmm. um fear the man that only has one bow you know it's like uh, i use my hunting bow and i use it for indoor i use it for 3d i use it for everything and i find a good setup uh elk you want penetration uh, but but it's also there's a range forgiveness there. And so it's a fine line between uh, how heavy of an arrow to shoot where you can get the correct penetration, but also have good range forgiveness. So once I dial in my setup, I use that for absolutely everything and build confidence throughout the year. And like uh, my bow setup now, like I'll go shoot indoor with those guys. And I mean, I can I can shoot a, a 299, 298, 297 with my hunting bow, 70 pound with small micro diameter arrows. Now, maybe I'm giving up a point here or there, but I'm I'm not in it to win tournaments. I'm in it to shoot big six-point bulls, you know. So, exactly. so uh, I, I practice with uh, my hunting setup all the time. Yep, and I think uh, you touched on it last night, and you kind of, you hit that keyword that when you were talking about your bow setup and you were talking about shooting from your knees and uphill, downhill, and doing all of that. To me, you just said that keyword is confidence. And I think for me as a bow hunter, and I think for you too, is that confidence of doing all of the stuff on the back end when you get to that happy place, you actually talked about that when you're hunting and you know it's that magic time when it's it's go time to to make that last thing happen, whatever's going to happen at that time. The confidence in that bow when you draw that arrow back and you're holding steady, there is not a doubt in your mind that that arrow is going to hit precisely, exactly replace that pin. And I think that goes a long way where I've seen a lot of hunters get to that point and also they start freaking out and then they start self-doubting themselves. Is it really this yard? Is this yard? Can I hold on? Is that arrow really going to hit there? where I think that's where I became a really highly successful hunt, bow hunter myself. Listen to you yesterday or last night at the seminar, when you talked about that, that was almost like ding, 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 ding. Here's a guy that understands all this prep and all this practice when he draws back. As soon as he lets that arrow go, he knows that it's over. It's just that confidence is built, and you can just like almost like just turn around and walk away and come back, and you'll find that animal. Mm-hmm. Confidence is a powerful tool in the mountains. Yeah, Absolutely. and confidence is earned through experiences. It's yep. uh, you, you don't get a false confidence. Like when you put in all that work, just like you said, you just know you can execute and make that shot, and and you know that animal's dead before that arrow's ever released. And yep. and a lot of that too is getting a hold of that buck fever. You can I've seen great tournament guys duff easy shots, and elk are big targets too. Yep. But you can't think of them that way. They're the toughest animals on planet Earth, and if you don't hit lungs harder they don't die and so you've got to really pick a spot and execute a good shot on those animals and so uh, a, a lot of this is is the mental side like I put all this practice in to get confidence and know I can make that shot but I spend so much time with my visualizations and and walking around visualizing that animal being out there and executing that perfect shot and it really takes like 
getting a hold of yourself in that moment. Like it's really easy in that moment to just have that pin just find fur and then just punch that arrow off. Like that's a, uh, like like the that's what your brain wants. Your brain wants to do that. So you almost have to get a hold yep. of yourself. So I practice getting a hold of myself throughout the entire hunt before the hunt. Like I visualize how that shot's going to go. So when I'm in that situation, like I may not visualize that exact circumstance, but I feel like I've been there before. I get a hold of myself and I know how important it is to let my pin settle and let it float and execute a good shot. And that's when I make precise shots that are those lethal, quick, clean kills, you know, which I, which I love, which is everything to me. Absolutely. And as I found out yesterday from our, our good friend Dale with Evolution Outdoors, there's one broadhead that you and I do the exact same thing with, and we shoot one broadhead. And you want to talk about the confidence of shooting a broadhead that, in my opinion, is the best broadhead on the market. And it even goes all the way back to when he created the Gravedigger broadhead. And that's kind of, I think I started back in 2012. So you want to kind of talk about that when you have a broadhead that you know that it's going to, when it hits, it's going to do everything you need it to do. Yeah, absolutely. Like we're all individuals and there's a lot of different choices out there. But yeah, this broadhead that Dale's come up with, uh, it's just on the the best on the market. Like I'm into a forgiving bow setup like I talked. And and so using this evolution head, it's so aerodynamic. It's so accurate. And any broadhead on the front of your arrow catches more wind than a field point. It's like putting fletchings on the front of your arrow. So in turn, it makes it less forgiving. It uh, you know, when you when you miss a shot by by six inches with a field point, it can miss by twelve inches with a broadhead. But Dale has come up with this aerodynamic broadhead that's really forgiving and as forgiving as you can get. Like these expandables, the the blades are so small on the front end of it that it just doesn't catch much wind. You don't get much wind drift. Uh, you don't get wind drag like they seem to hit at the exact same point, and then they're sharpened both ways. And so uh, the 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 four blade, the fixed, uh, it opens up a really good hole. Hole, and then that expandable, it opens up to an inch and five eighths on those blades, but it's also got the smaller three quarter on the front, sharpened both ways. And so. Uh, you know, you, you hit something in the middle, you just know it's going to do damage. You know you're going to get a good blood trail. You know you're going to find that animal. And, and I do think those expandables on a marginal shot, too, give you a better chance at, at collecting that game animal. So I've just got a ton of confidence in those things. And, and that confidence comes from a lot of practice and knowing that they're going to hit in the middle when I shoot them. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. What um, Now that we're starting to dial in our bow setups for everybody listening, uh, you can check out those hides and the uh, jekylls. The jekylls are the fixed blade and the hides are the expandables like we were talking about uh, Dale with Evolution Outdoors for anyone that's interested look at his website. Um, What are some of the western states that you enjoy? Obviously you're from Montana Um, you get a lot of opportunity unlike here in Arizona that takes quite a few years but what are some of the western states that you've hunted elk in and then what are some of your favorite states? Favorite states, excuse me. Yep. So, um, so I'm up north in Montana there, and so I'm really fortunate. I get an elk tag every single year in Montana, but it's tough general season hunting. Success odds with the bow up there run six percent. So you know about one bull every twenty years. But if you put in the work and, and, and you put in your time with your e scouting and your scouting, there's some great hunting up there. So I'm fortunate that I get to hunt elk every year. Uh, I love Montana. Idaho's got over the counter. I usually hunt Idaho because they're my next door neighbor. 
and, and in these states like down here, like I'd love to elk hunt down here. I haven't got my Arizona tag yet, but I apply every year. And so like these states that sit down south that are a 24-hour drive for me, these I, I want a premium tag. If I'm going to make the drive down here, if I'm going to pay that big money, I want a chance at a really good bull. And so uh, I apply for all the western states for elk, but usually my go-to are the Montana, the Idaho, the Wyoming, the stuff that's right around me. Colorado has some over-the-counter, but again, that's that's further for me. It's a 14, 16-hour drive. Uh, so, so I really focus on those northern states, and really my opportunity in Montana is awesome. An elk tag every single year in my home state, and it's close to me. Like I live in a great elk valley, but Montana is such a big state. Like uh, I've been exploring it for 20 years, and, and I still have only touched a fingernail of it. There's still ranges I want to get to, bulls I want to chase in different places. So I really have a lot on my plate just with my Montana tag every year. Uh, and, and then the last handful of years, I've had an Idaho and a Montana tag, which has been good. And and my goal is just to kill one good bull between those two states and, and really mix and matching mountain hunting with, um, you know, we've got breaks out there, we've got foothills, things of that nature. And I'll hunt elk in all those different habitats, but I got to make sure I hunt them in the mountains once a year. And, and then also, uh, like, I like that breaks country is really nice. But yeah, that that's pretty much sums up my elk hunting. How... Um Having been from Washington, how do those Roosevelt elk compare to our Rocky Mountain elk that, that most of us know out here? Yeah, it's it's just tougher country to hunt them in. There's less numbers out there with those Roosevelts, and they live in thicker country, you know. And so my biggest advantage is being able to glass. I love hunting open terrain. And, and elk like feeding features, but in Washington, they'll feed alder slides, and they'll feed clear cuts and things of that nature. And, and there just isn't as many numbers out there. Um, which makes it difficult. And then also the thick cover makes it really difficult. And so to move out west where I could actually see and glass elk has been amazing. So I look for more open terrain as it fits my style of elk hunting. And it's mind-boggling to think anyone that hasn't been to Washington or up in that Olympic rainforest area that you have these, they have a little bit smaller racks from what I've been told and what I've been heard, but they're two to 300 pounds heavier than a Rocky Mountain that walking through this dense forest is this thousand pound elk is just incredible um how do they look on the hoof obviously a big bull elk anywhere is gigantic but how do those look when you're seeing those at bow range compared to a rocky Man, they, they look like a unicorn in that rainforest. It's like you'll just be still hunting along and all of a sudden see this big, magnif- magnificent bull. And they, they get like a redder colored horn out there from rubbing on the, the, the alder. Um, uh, yeah, it's alder out there. So they get this redder color horn to them. You know, they're not like dark like the Rocky Mountain. Um, you know, they're like a like a spirit animal moving through that rainforest out there. And so, yeah, when you get a close encounter out there, uh, it's dang near life changing, you know, when you see one of those things. But yeah, it's a different set of skills. And in hunting these different habitats and even hunting these different species, uh, they build your hunting skill set. And really that's what it's about is evolving this this hunting skill set to where you can go anywhere and be undeniable. And so I love hunting elk in these different terrains and these different habitats. And that makes me a better hunter having to solve that puzzle and having to figure it out. And so my Roosevelt hunting has really made me a, a good still hunter as you have to still hunt through the forest a lot. You have to really pay attention to the bugles. And, and then being able to read the terrain and topography when it's all timbered and covered with with underbrush reading the knobs that they like and the the 
the cool timber they like to bed in and in the bottoms. And so uh, it, it's really helped my elk hunting skill set for sure. But man, I like these Western states. Like I, I love hunting the Montana, the Idaho, hunting the more open terrain. You know, that's that's really my go-to. Absolutely. You want to? You kind of touched on this last night. At the seminars. There are some key characteristics where you look if you're glassing. You know, is it the north side, the south side, the east side? If there's a meadow, you know, where those elk can live, they can live within the meadow side, within 50 yards of the thick timber. They're going to go farther in. You kind of touched on some of that stuff last night. So for the listeners, when you're kind of scouting and you're looking, where would you normally be looking immediately to see where those elk are living as a general rule? Mm-hmm. for consistency yeah so i like to hunt elk in their feeding features and elk need to feed they need to come out in these openings and the uh what you're referring to is like the edge of a meadow so 50 yards on on any um uh change in in habitat so fifth like if take uh, the edge of the timber and the edge of a meadow 50 yards inside the timber and 50 yards inside that meadow there's five times the plant diversity there than there is in the middle of the meadow or in the middle of the timber and in that timber there's not enough sunlight that gets down there to grow that good grass now you know up north we have a lot of beetle kill which lets the sunlight through we have burns which lets the sunlight through and it also uh, uh makes that soil uh, to where it grows really good grass, you know, those those fires that burn. But for me, I, I'm looking for feeding features. I'm looking for the edge of meadows there. So like I say, 50 yards inside or outside, you're going to have five times the diversity there. And the, those elk, they're, they're nomadic and, and they're a herd animal. And so they have to graze and they they're designed so they don't overgraze one spot. They move through the mountain range through different feeding features and bedding features. And so when I'm looking for things, I'm looking for where I can glass elk. I'm looking for feeding features. And and it's different. Sometimes in, in some country, the south facers are the only ones that have openings. Uh, and the north facers are all timber. There's no feed on there. Uh, as you get into more open mountain ranges, then you'll have these pocket parks that will happen on these north sides that they'll get really neon green. And so I'll look at those. So every mountain range is different, but I'm looking for feeding features. I'm looking for meadows. Elk love bottoms. Uh, bottoms will be the the most neon green spots in the mountain because they get the most moisture. Any of those springs, anything of that nature that'll that'll make that really neon grass. Uh, I'm looking for sparse cover. I'll look for burns. And again, I'm not looking in the middle of the burn. I'm looking at the edges. Uh, and so that's kind of what I look for when I'm looking for elk habitat. Uh, they also need water every single day. So, um, they can move pretty high up the mountain, but they've got to be able to get that water every day. So it's important to not get above the water up there or get above timberline. They like to be down just a little bit. And they tend to summer up high, and then as that food starts to burn off, they start moving down the mountain. So I'll actually e-scout multiple different elevations. Um, but but I'm just looking for key characteristics that's good elk country, but, but that's no guarantee there's going to be elk there. Then for me, it's a matter of covering country. Like elk are nomadic and I have to be nomadic too. And I don't do good waiting for elk to show up. I go find them. And, and so I go hike into these places and I'm in there at the right time. And then I'm glassing these these features that I think will hold elk. And I'm paying attention to the sign I'm seeing. I'm listening for bugles and things of that nature. What are some of the other tactics now that we're, we're moving into that segment of the, the spot and the stock and you're doing the e-scouting? There's obviously any of the tools. We're not here to, to plug any of, the, any of those, but most of us use onyx um on the guys that we hunt with here on uh mike and i and quite a few of our friends you can share those way waypoints with each other there's lots of other e-scouting or google earth and whatnot that we've all used 
when you have got a game plan just from that aspect and you're going to a new area and you got boots on the ground, um, can you talk a little bit about the scouting that you're doing in person and then how that translates into how you're going to make a game plan for opening day? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so scouting elk is is difficult because uh, where the bulls are right now is not where they're going to be come September. And elk are nomadic. And so, you know, a lot of times I'm just looking for numbers or I'm looking for signs of the rut. I'm looking for scrapes. I'm looking for wallows, places where it, it's their rutting ground, where those cows are going to be, where the bulls are going to be in September. And I really don't spend a lot of time scouting elk uh, unless I'm scouting out a new location. And, and really, I'm looking for uh, vantage points, ridge lines, drainages I'm going to hunt and linking this country together. But uh, for the majority of my elk hunting, I like to do my elk scouting in September with a bow in my hands. Like I I make these game plans and then I'm just diving into country to try to locate these elk. And so I cover a lot of miles, but it's really important to be at the right places at the right times. Mm -hmm. These elk may only give you a 15 minute window to see them and you can go into the best elk drainage in the world. But if you get in there at 10 o'clock in the morning and don't see an elk and don't think there's elk in there, they just put away in the timber already, you know, so you've got this really brief window to catch them because they do the majority of their rutting at night and so you've got to be at the right places at the right time and also at night you don't come home you don't start walking back to camp to make it down there by dark like you leave your vantage point at dark you have to wait that last 15 minutes of light uh, and they do a lot of rutting in the dark and so I actually do a lot of my locating in the dark as I'll leave two hours before light in the morning and I'm listening for bugles the whole time because if you can hear a bugle like the key to killing elk is being into elk like being into them consistently so so I'm always listening and and so I'll leave two hours before light and I'll listen the whole way into my spot of where I want to hunt to try to hear an elk and if I can hear one then I've got a bull located I can go in same thing at night I'm hiking out in the dark I'm listening for bugles and, and then I'll even go out at night and I'll hike out to different rims and I'll just listen out there. And if I can hear those bulls bugling, then I know there's an elk party down there and I can be into elk the next day. And and then, you know, there isn't much elk activity in the middle of the day. Sure, I may grab a vantage point or I may look around or do something. But for the most part, elk are hunted morning and night. And then I'll try to locate them, you know, in the dark, hear them bugle. And then I'll take a nap middle of the day. Middle of the day is not a productive time to be rolling through elk country. And I like to hunt them in their feeding features. So I don't want to go bump elk out of their beds in the middle of the day, you know, unless I know that exact location of that bull and I'm trying to make a stock or a play on them. But for the most part, uh, I'm morning and night on these elk. Yeah. And anyone that's ever been out there hunting and you get up super early, nothing feels better than a, uh, than an afternoon nap, right? Oh my gosh, that's heaven or relaxing. I'm not a nap guy, but elk season, I'm a nap guy, man. It just makes me feel human, especially when you're pushing so hard. Your your hunting technique reminds me of Mike's uh, Unit 9 bull from two years ago. Most of the guys that I'd heard or listened and were taught elk hunting do the calling aspect of it. Mike's like, nope, I, I am as quiet as I can. I'll make a few maybe cow calls, but I am with them. Um, Mike can elaborate a little bit more on it, but Unit 9 is obviously a, a high, highly sought-after elk unit. Um, you got the monster bulls up there. He had an unbelievable 7x7 seven seven that he harvested a couple years ago, and he's getting up just like you, getting up super early, being with them, walking with them on the edge you know, from several hundred yards away and hearing them without having to make a noise. You're not having anyone else out there. You can hear your footsteps you're in the timber while they're out there in the feeding in the meadows 
And Mike, you want to talk a little bit about that? Because I know Brian was explaining that you got to walk with them, you got to be with them, you got to be a part of that herd and and whatnot. That was yeah. a great bull, by the way. Like, Gosh, that's a beautiful bull. Yeah. You had him on the stage I last did. night. I did. Yeah. Yeah. What Thank a great you. seven by seven. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah, and that was the whole goal was that was when I saw the bull I wanted to shoot, I was going to shoot him. And so I just the whole season was just I just wanted to enjoy the hunt. Then when that bull came in and gave me the opportunity, I when I I told myself I knew that I knew that I was going to shoot that bull. That was going to be the time. So like that was kind of my expectation and. It's amazing how that just works out. But to expand on Chet's is on that hunt, I you know I always do everything by myself. So I took one person with me, and it's a retired school teacher in his late his late sixties. And I said, your job is to be at camp with me at night. You're going to drop me off, and when I call you at the end of the day, you're going to pick me up. So we would start at two o'clock in the morning, as you said. You kind of kind of hit that. To me, that's really essential because bulls are they're going crazy in the middle of the night. So I would get dropped off. But before that, you made some key points. I'm going to have you talk about that real quick. Last night when I was listening, I was like, "Man, this you were you were just like nailing it." The, if if somebody took two percent of what you said last night, they're a thousand times better hunter today. I mean, you gave so much information. I was trying to comprehend it all while I was doing everything else. And but the point that I that you stood out before that was you have twenty five fifty. You have all these game plans. You have A B C. You have all these game plans to where when that hunt goes, you have the confidence to to hit all those different whatever it may be. So if one, two, three, four, the tenth didn't work, now you're moving to 11 through 20 because you're just going to keep rolling that way. You're not sitting there saying second-guessing yourself. So in my preparation, what I realized is, and you kind of talked about where the elk like to be, is every time I was driving at night or wherever, I would see all these different elk along the roads because that's where they're feeding. That's where the water pulls up, and that's where all that vegetation. So, of course, if I'm driving down the road and I start seeing elk consistently on that road, I know that's, that's where they're going to be at night, and that's where they're feeding. Then I would then through all my scouting, I was always driving at night, going back and forth, and I'd start seeing these same types of bulls as the season is early September, and I'd see the same bulls in this five mile stretch. So I'm like, hey, here we go. Here's this is they're going east to west, and that's that's their feeding line. And this was at night, so I started my hunt, getting dropped off at two o'clock in the morning. And of course, where I got dropped off, they're just screaming, and we went almost seven miles before the sun came up, and I'm within two three yards of the elk. The whole time, and as the sun comes up, I, I'm in a bugling frenzy in the elk, and I did that for five days until I harvested my elk. But, but that was the key part was I was living with the elk, just enjoying them in this pure dark and just stumbling along, making sure the wind, because because they're just moving along with the wind in their nose. I mean, the, every direction they always went was they're walking into the wind, and I'm just kind of right behind them and bugling, and some elk would follow behind me and be all around me. But, but that was really some key points that I think that really, if these listeners really understood, is if you can get out of bed early, you're not getting up 20 minutes before daylight, you're not driving in the dark to go to your spot, you're already in that spot, and you're actually understanding where those elk are, as your statement was a few minutes ago, is you're actually getting out there in the middle of the night, hearing the bugles so you know exactly where that party's at, and then you're, at, you're ready to go in that next morning. So, Man, uh, you did so many things right on that hunt. So, yeah, it is. I, I like to have these different game plans. And so in my e-scouting, I develop these plans, and, and, and I develop a plan for multiple different days, the drainages I'll hunt, where I'll camp, where I'll move my camp, uh, locations that I want to hit. And I write it all down in a notebook. And, and then, yeah, you're right. I go through and I make plan A, plan B, plan C. Like there's nothing worse than being in your tent. You haven't found elk in multiple days, and you're sitting in there wondering where you're going to 
to go. And, and, and you're just almost lost because you sleep deprived, you're tired, uh, maybe you haven't found elk. Like it's not a good place to make good decisions. And so if I've got that all down in a notebook, I can just open up my notebook and go, what's my next plan? What's my next move? And know that I've put my time in e-scouting and, and, and the vantage points and where I'm going to hike. Like always having a plan to go to is really important on these hunts. But then also, like you did, is adapting to the situation in which you're given. Where you find elk, then you're hunting those elk. So you found elk on that road at night, and then you started to get into those elk. So uh, I think that was really smart, like adapting to the conditions you're giving. Like like a lot of times, it's a adapt, evolve, and overcome. You yep. know, uh, the elk like to be where the elk like to be, and you have yep. to hunt them there. And so uh, then you did a great job of getting yourself inside that herd. Like I love to. Uh, shadow that herd and so uh, uh, when once I locate elk whether they're bugling or whether I glass them up then I want to travel with that herd and I just want to put myself a couple hundred yards and move with them and I, I want to look for the right moment to then move in and try to kill that bull but until then I'm just going to travel with them and just try to keep with them and the longer you can keep with the herd that bull will make a mistake you know just the better chance you have and and, and the biggest key for me is keeping that element of surprise which you did you would move yeah. behind those elk you didn't give them your win yeah. you'd move with them until you found that that right circumstance where you can move in and close and so that's what i did like the bulls i killed last year i killed my biggest bull to date i hunted that bull for two days i backed out on him another great 331 bull i killed i hunted that bull for three days so i'm not spooking or blowing up these elk I, i'm just taking what they'll give me i'm moving when they allow it and you you might get stuck in a meadow and they're all out in the open and you're 100 yards away and you can't move any closer yep. and it's just waiting for them to move off and then you make your next move and in elk hunting I hunt them aggressive. Like I'm making moves. If there's elk there, I'm going to try to get the wind right. I'm going to try to move in, but I don't stalk recklessly and I don't stalk to failure. I don't stalk until I blow these elk up. I know when to slow down and then I know when to stop and wait and wait for these elk to move off. And so it's like this flow state of elk hunting that you get into where you're really relying upon your instincts and, and your instincts, they come from all your years of experience and, and really they come from a lot of your failures, Absolutely. like messing up these elk and, and and when you learn from it, then you can recognize these circumstances again. And so that's really how I like to hunt these elk. Absolutely. And the one thing that I think I told you, Chet, but I probably on my cell phone, I probably filmed 15 to 18 different bulls, all the satellite bulls. When you're in the mix like that, you don't realize how many bulls come and go trying to penetrate that herd and they run off. And I had I probably could have shot upwards of 20 different bulls while I'm trace, chasing the bulls that I wanted to shoot which are nice bulls, 300-inch bulls that are flying by at 15, 18, 30 yards that are just, they got their head down, they're breathing heavy, and they're being run off. And it's an incredible opportunity just to witness nature. I mean, that's the things that most people don't realize is all this craziness that's going on and all these bulls flying by and trying to get in the herds, and you're right, actually right in the middle of it just kind of witnessing it. And you have a bull that you want to shoot, and you have all these great bulls that you would shoot on any other day just going by it. It's it's an incredible feeling. It really is. Of uh, to me, that was the sense of accomplishment is just being able to witness that. And that's to me when I look back at my hunt, that's some of the most proudest things that I have. Even though I shot a great bull, but that experience that I can take with me for the rest of my life. Oh sure. man, it's just the wildest thing to to be part of those situations. Yeah. And there, you know, it happens once a year. And it, these moments, um, I it just like any time I can. 
I, I can dial in nature, dial in this this elk rut and be part of this elk party where you hear 300 bugles in a night or 400 bugles yep. in a night and you're chasing bulls and you're trying to kill them. And some of those satellite bulls can be great bulls in some of these yep. units. Some can even be bigger than the herd bull. Sometimes yep. it's just attitude, you know. But, yep. um, yeah, that, that for me, uh, that is the funnest part of elk hunting is being in the mix, getting myself into these elk. And, and that's the payoff for me. And so I'll do whatever <laughs> it takes to get myself to that position again but yeah man it's super special like to to be part of that and to witness that and to be the only person there that sees it yeah. uh that is special so that's what i'm chasing in elk season two is that good elk action yeah absolutely and the other thing i was going to touch on too i forgot was there's three wallows that i found that i would have never found right in the middle of you know in the thick the thickest woods and these little drainages while you're chasing all of a sudden you walk up and you see this you can hear the water and all of a sudden you get closer and all of a sudden here's this little bitty wallow no bigger in this little room a 10 by 10 area that you would never find unless you happen to walk on top of it. And I have found all three of those because a bull, a satellite bull was in there rolling around and I can hear the water. And as we got closer and marked that on my GPS, and now I got those for life because those they're always going to be in those same little areas because every time it rains, those, and then what I noticed is they're all little de- depressions and, and they just stunk and rinked. And so I got those in my back pocket too. That's also part of the, the learning and adapting and, and using for futures. So. Yeah, well, in hunting these places year after year, we gain this huge knowledge base, base yeah. and I'm always exploring new country. Even if I know a unit really well, I'll have new spots that I want to hit, which is where I killed my best bull last year. It's a new spot I had never been. Uh, but yeah, hunting these spots year after year, we're able to learn those wallows, those places that elk like. Uh, And and they prefer certain parts of the country, and it's weird to watch elk move through the mountains. They have a flow. They move through mountains. And and where you see elk go over a saddle is where you'll see all the elk go over the saddle. So as you start to build this knowledge base about a unit, then then the next time you get this nine tag or or you've been hunting a unit for three years or four years, you get such a knowledge base, and it gives you such an advantage over other guys. And I I really think, like, um, hunting big bulls, it, it... you know, a, a good tag where you, you know, have that opportunity at those good bulls um, it is really advantageous. But in the same breath, if you're not hunting elk a lot and learning elk behavior, you can't just draw a good tag and go in there and expect to kill a great bull. You have to build all these elk hunting skill sets to, to then be able to go into this new habitat or a new unit and be able to put it together to harvest a good bull. So for me, uh, a, a lot of my, my elk hunting skill set has just come from experience of hunting these things and then to get to know these these units or these places i hunt year after year is a huge advantage absolutely for sure and i think here in arizona since it's so hard to draw if you can just go with one person a year and just be part of that elk camp mm-hmm. and i don't like big crowds but usually if i find somebody that just wants one or two people that i'm in and i think that's where i've learned so much more even though i didn't have the tag i'm just going there learning and adapting through the eyes of the person i'm helping and a lot of those are cow hunts which are fantastic because there's no pressure and the cows are so much smarter than bulls then when you got 20 cows you know in a herd and trying to penetrate them with a bow and arrow it's actually really tough Mm -hmm. and and that's what made me a better elk hunter was actually becoming a cow hunter through friends that drew those tags and kind of learning that way oh that's great i love that experience is the best teacher so when you can get on these elk hunts or you can draw a cow tag or like uh, you guys are close to colorado over the counter hunts but yeah just the the more experience you're going to get the better hunter you're going to be and also uh you know hunting different species in different habitats like you guys got 
about over-the-counter mule deer and coos tags. Those coos will make you a much better elk hunter. You know, oh, those things are, are switched on and tough to get close to. And, and so hunting these different places and different species, they really up that skill set. And that skill set, uh, it transposes to elk hunting. Sure, they they may have a little bit different habits or uh, behaviors, but 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 all these skill sets transpose. And so, yeah, it really is like, like hunting as much as you can is, is really going to gonna make you a better hunter yeah we joke out here if, if you can hunt coos deer you can it doesn't transcend to every species but if you can if you can bow hunt and you're a successful bow hunter on spot and stock on a coos deer you can tackle a whole lot of other animals because everything in the in the desert everything in the woods wants to kill those little guys man you guys are spot <laughs> on yeah that's exactly right if you can kill a coos deer you can kill a bull elk <laughs> yep when you're talking about Mike and you both speaking about uh, getting into that herd and you guys are playing the wind to your favor and the thermals and whatnot, can you elaborate a little bit on that, on how you're judging that, um, where you're looking right now and how your wind direction is versus 300 yards is going to be different versus if you crest over a ridge or when you go from the timberline out into a meadow? Um, can you elaborate a little bit on that, on how you've learned over the years? Obviously, experience pays, but what you've done to educate yourself so that some of our listeners can look into uh, better reading the wind, reading the thermals here in Arizona. Uh, sun warms up real quick, even in September in those northern units. It can get up into the 80s, low 90s possibly. Yeah, so um, more elk have been busted by the wind than anything else. Like the the wind is absolutely key when you're hunting and moving with these elk. And and to me, it's a higher understanding of the wind. Like I carry a wind checker. There's a wind checker, which is the smoke that comes out of the bottle. Also a wind floater, which is like a fiber you can release into the air. But but for me, it's not just checking the wind and moving on these elk. It's this higher understanding of what the what the winds are doing, and, and then how they're how the mountains affect those winds. And so it's having this this understanding of the the uh, thermal winds and so the thermal like you mentioned it before as the sun comes up it warms the valley floor that air gets warm around the valley floor it starts to rise and it rises up the canyons up the mountain and as it gets later in the day there's more heat those thermals get consistent coming uphill and then as that mountain starts to cool that air starts to cool around those high mountains and that air starts to drop and it follows back down those ravines and back down those coolies and so the best wind for killing elk is like first thing in the morning before the sun gets on the valley floor where you've got those downhill thermals. Same thing in the evening with the downhill thermals. But you've also got these directionals to factor in. Directionals you can find on a wind forecast app. I use Windy. Um, it, it's a red app with a white W. And you can pull up the wind forecast, the direction, and also to tell you the speed of the wind and kind of how it's moving through those mountains. So like where I'm at, I have a, a southwest dominant wind. And you can look for tomorrow. Maybe I've got a north wind and I'm going to hunt this place different, but it's understanding how these directionals move through the mountains. And so I love hunting elk on the dominant wind side. So when you have a dominant southwest wind that's blowing right against the hillside, that's a dominant wind. And so when you can get a good directional and a good thermal, you're in the money. But hunting uh, wind, hunting places that are on the lee wind side, so you got a southwest wind, but it's on the north side, the wind just gets over there and it's like a washer machine over there. It really moves your wind around and, and it's really tough 
tough to kill elk on the lee wind side. So for me, it's like this higher understanding of the winds. And the whole hunt, I'm taking note of the wind. Like uh, I don't just pay attention to the wind when I'm going on a stalk or when I find elk. I've got a whole notebook of five days of wind in this mountain range and which direction it's coming tomorrow and, and how it's uh, affected in this canyon or on this hillside. And so I've got all these notes. And so for me, it's like this higher understanding of the wind. So not only am I weeding, reading the wind where I'm at, like I know what it's doing at those elk because I've been taking notes and I know what the directionals are and what the thermals are. And so I really think it's this higher understanding of the wind. And I think it's helped me kill a lot of bulls. Absolutely. So, most people don't realize that they need to have multifaceted. You got to be a meteorologist. You got to you got to know how to stalk. You got to know how to practice. You got to have all these different things. It's not just walking out there, going into a high success area or even a high elk dense population. There is so much more to being successful. Um, it goes into being in shape too. Um, a lot of people, if they haven't heard how how crazy one hundred and ten percent that you give it. Do you want to talk about that mental toughness, uh, what it takes to, some people say, embrace the, embrace the suck. You know it's going to hurt. You know if you train hard and you're doing more stuff to your body to prepare yourself in training than when you're in, in the fight, so to speak, it doesn't hurt as bad because you already know what to expect. You want to talk and tell people how you've gained that grittiness in order to to go where places that people aren't going to go. You're you're probably one of, you know, the the 1% that are willing to go where a lot of other people will not go. A lot of, you know, we joke that a lot of people are road hunters. A lot of people are, you know, the base camp and are going to take their ATV and there's nothing against that. There everybody has their niche. But to be successful on a solo backpack or to go farther than most people are willing to go what's that mental fortitude or that toughness and how you've attained that in order to go to those places where, you know, you have everything you need you may have a Garmin inReach, but if you get hurt out there or you're in, you know, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, you guys have grizzlies to deal with that we don't here in Arizona. Um, all that stuff correlates and are part of those plans of A through Z and, and then one through 10 off of each of those plans. I'm sure you have all these steps and a game plan for each of that, but the toughness in order to uh, get past certain obstacles or hurdles that are presented that nature, you know, you can't fight against. Yeah, absolutely. My physical preparation is so important to me. And I've just seen the benefit over the years. And I really enjoy the hunt more when I'm physically prepared. It, it just comes easier. And there's there's no elk too far for me to chase. And my style of elk hunting is to push myself to my limits physically and mentally to try to earn a bull to keep putting forth effort. And so it, it all starts and ends with the mind. Like um, to set your mind to something, you can be any man you want to be. You can be a great hunter if you want to be that. It, it, it's just about setting your mind to it and then working tirelessly day in day out to improve your skill set to go into these places and be successful and so uh, my physical preparation is huge and and I do a, a bunch of elevation is key to me I used to run uh, uh, marathons run them on the roads and and really I found that the key for the mountains is being able to walk uphill and embrace it seems like elk are always walking uphill uh, so I really get my body ready for for anything that I'm gonna face on these hunts and then yeah, it, it helps build my mental toughness. Like, how do you get grit? How do you get mental toughness? You know, it's, it's about 
it's about like uh, you're going to have adversity on these hunts and it's being able to face this adversity head on and being able to get through these hurdles, whether it's hunting pressure, whether it's tough weather, whether it's a tough rut, uh, a bunch of miles, a bunch of elevation to be able to endure that is how you're successful. And so to add this mental toughness, like I get a bunch out of my training. Like, um, not only am I training my body, but I'm sharpening my mind for hunting season. And so for me, it's discipline. It's like, uh, making myself do it day in, day out, like finding the time to put in this work, which is paying dividends towards season, towards being successful. And so making myself tie on my running shoes when it's, when it's hot outside, making myself, uh, put on my shoes when it's 20 below and it's blowing sideways. It, it's not so much about the run and the, what I'm going to get from this one workout. It's about making myself do it. It's about the discipline of it. And then when I'm out there, you know, it's one foot in front of the other and you feel like quitting, but you keep going and you push through this. Like, uh, we, we grow as people, uh, uh, facing this adversity and making it through the other side. And, and where you grow as a person it, it, is like getting comfortable with the uncomfortable. And so, uh, I put in this, this work throughout the season. I sharpened my mind and then I've been on a bunch of these tough hunts where it's come down to the end and I've arrowed a bowl in the end because I've, I've just put in this constant effort and these hunts, they're always tougher than I expect. Like I make these game plans and I know backcountry hunting is one of the toughest endeavors there are out there. And like, um, that like a 10 day hunt, uh, it takes more endurance than any marathon or ultra marathon that I've ever ran. Like it's 10 days of constant effort and being sleep deprived. And so you have to set your mind to it. So building this discipline and this mental toughness and adding these layers of, of mental toughness of making myself do it, uh, uh, is really the key to my my success. Like, um, uh, you know, when when I define my my keys for success, you know, it, it's uh, discipline, it's hard work, failure, and then resilience. You know, you are gonna fail whether that's a failure on a stock, you don't find animals, and so that resilience is so important. And the 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 really successful guys that I know all have this attribute of resilience. They just keep pushing. Like they may fail, but they're not gonna give up. They're gonna keep pushing. And and really that's been the biggest key to my success. Huge. I, I mean those all those lessons you can apply to everything in life. Um, like he's like Brian talked about earlier being able to have that strong home values, the strong family bond, being able to take care of everything at, at home transcends into having a happy and healthy life, just like having all those disciplines um, on your work ethic are gonna transpire into how you're gonna tackle a hunt, how you're gonna fail, or how you're gonna you know, overcome adversity. Um, what are some of the things that you guys, or that you do specifically if you do you have a Garmin or how are you going to communicate if you if you did get hurt in these back countries if you had a grizzly bear encounter you got hurt or you twisted an ankle and you can't hike out with with these far really far in there I know you go you know five six ten miles back in there um, and if you're by yourself you only have yourself to rely on yeah um it's part of the adventure side like um <laughs> life is so nerfed and in nowadays you know we got our seat belts and we drive to and from work we come to our house turn on the tap we get water but 
out there in nature, like it, it's raw, it's wild, it's like primitive, you know, and that's what I love about it. So I carry an inreach uh, uh, that, I, that I'm able to keep in contact with my wife or keep in, you know, call for help if I ever need it. But, but really, it's my physical preparation at getting my body ready for these backcountry hunts where I know that I can, I, I can face anything and come out the other side. So uh, I do carry that inreach, uh, but, but really, it's relying upon my body to get me anywhere I need to go. And also, like all this trail running and running uh, all this elevation and this uneven terrain, like it just gets my ankles, my knees, it gets my whole body ready for for like this uh, these these backcountry hunts. And so, a lot of it's in my preparation. But I, I do carry an inreach, and then uh, I, I love hunting um, uh, spot and stock bears with my bow. Like it's entry level dangerous game, but I know there there's a, a risk involved with it. And so, you know, my deal with my family, I used to be just me and my bow versus these bears but now i i carry a pistol i've had two of these black bears charge me after i've arrowed them um so like you hit a bear and, and it's just different than an ungulate oh, yeah. like they roar they spin they bite at the arrow and, and they're not always trying to run away from you you know like i say i've oh, had yeah. a couple charge me and so like i i make sure that i carry my pistol when i'm spring black bear hunting i practice with it i build a shooting process with it just like i build with my bow uh, so, so I'm ready for when that situation arises to make sure that I can keep myself safe, come back to my family and live to hunt another day. Like the first three rules of backcountry hunting are safety, safety, and safety. Like you got to live to hunt another day and no buck is worth dying for. And I get in some of this real extreme tough terrain above timberline where you're in the cliffs and things. And it's, it's just about making really good decisions, making really good choices and not pushing past, uh, my, my skill level, like whether it's climbing down a, a rock shoot or or, uh, you know, whether it's uh, doing tough miles, like I've just got my body ready for it. And so I just have a ton of confidence in my preparation. And then, you know, my backup plan is, is I do have that in reach that I yep. can call if I was into trouble, but uh, it's relying upon myself to keep myself safe and make good decisions. Yep, absolutely. So my last question, because I, I know we're getting, we think you got an airline flight here coming up in about two hours. So we yeah, appreciate yeah. you jumping in. Um, yep. So my last question is you flew into Arizona. I don't know how much time you spent in Arizona, but this is come down to our seminar last night. And we had, I think we had close to 300 people at the seminar last night with all of our local vendors. Just wanted your impression Gosh. of what you guys, what you witnessed in coming into Arizona. And we, we appreciate Dale, uh, his friendship that, you know, bringing you down here. And I know this was like a last minute thing and, and we appreciate you. Saying, hey, yeah, I'd love to get on a plane and come down to Arizona and, and do this elk seminar for you guys. Man, um, yeah, I met Dale a couple years ago, or, or I've been shooting Dale's broadhead since like 2012, and they have harvested so many animals for me, and I've just grown to really like that guy. And so he had me down at his place. He let me stay at his place. He picked me up from the airport. He drove me over here this morning. And so, uh, yeah, he's just a great guy. And um, I'm so impressed by your guys' organization, like um, to be able to give that, that rifle away to uh, the military veterans last night, like that melted my heart. You know, those guys that uh, bled for our country. And then and then the, we gave uh, you guys gave three rifles away to kids, to new hunters last night in these raffles. And then this whole elk seminar, the whole thing was put on by free. And I know this has been a big fundraiser for you guys like these elk seminars. But to put this whole thing on after COVID and just in, in 
invite all these people and these the vendors that I met last night. I met an outfitter that uh, get the I think he's raffling away two of these coos deer hunts, and then he's donating all the proceeds to help mule deer in the south, like by putting these these water tanks in. Like just a great community of people, a great event. I am so impressed and just so glad that I that I got to meet like these good people that um, that that Dale hangs out with. Meet you guys and uh, everybody's been so well welcoming and and really like the seminar and so um man i i just feel uh so fortunate and blessed to be invited to come down and uh thank thank dale for for getting me the gig and introducing me to you guys absolutely i appreciate it too i just have one uh one one last parting can you we've talked about the mental toughness we've talked about all the preparation can you talk about with all that um what is a story we have lots of positive stories, but some of the lessons, the best lessons learned are from those hard, hard times. Can we leave our listeners with um, just the grind or a, a hunt that you thought was going to go great and how your mental toughness got through it that it may may or may not have been successful? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, it's tough. Like uh, uh, We go through a lot of failures as bow hunters. Like If you don't like to fail, you're in the wrong business because you are going to fail. You're going to eat tags. You're going to miss shots. You're going to mess up stocks. Uh, but it's really about picking yourself up from these and, and becoming better because of them. And so like what comes to mind when you... Well, when you when you talk about uh, failures or a hunt that I really learned something, I did this um, this Wyoming high country hunt for mule deer. And I love hunting high country mule deer. Um, it, it I love that as much as I love elk hunting. And so I did this big backcountry hunt, and it, it was uh, we we're gonna backpack in, and uh, I had seven days worth of food and and roll into this backpack hunt and uh, all the bucks had kind of moved off the top the feed had burned off early and so they moved down into secondary living so they're still in really rough rugged country around 10,000 feet in elevation but they're in shoots and slides and there's more cover and so they disappear into the cover for the day so it's more of a cat and mouse more of a chess game almost like a, a hunt and elk where you put them away in their beds and then you set up close to that bed in the afternoon where they're going to come out and so did this hunt in Wyoming and um, had this gnarly storm come in uh, had my cameraman quit on me you know so I had to have my buddy film the rest of it like he had somebody drive three hours to pick him up it was like I took him to Everest or something up there you know, he just he just didn't prepare for this hunt and he's been on a couple hunts with me but he had never had a hunt go deep like this deep into the day so we packed seven days worth of food and I think we were in there 11 days we were out of food the last two days uh, it's the best hunt I have ever had. I got more stocks on more big bucks. I just couldn't make it come together. Like I made some mistakes in my stocking, uh, like where you lose track of the bucks and you think you're in this spot and you end up busting them out. But I got some plays at beautiful bucks with stickers and kickers and 30 inches wide. And, and so I was getting these plays, but I was just pushing myself to the edge. It was day in, day out, covering these miles and this elevation. And I was the only person back in there. Like I never saw another hunter and, and I was able to just uh, really push my limits mentally and physically to try to kill one of these bucks. And I got some great plays, some close encounters. I actually had a, a miss on a buck. I'm trying to remember the exact circumstances with how I missed him. Uh, but but it was basically like this buck came out and, uh, you know, I hate to put the blame on anybody else, but my cameraman behind me was sliding down the hill and that buck caught his movement right there. 
So I, I tried to take a shot, and um, I, I think he jumped my string. I can't remember exactly why I had missed on that shot, but it was um, uh, like a longer shot at one of these bucks. But I, I had my chances, and I had all these stocks and all these plays, and it was just this great experience. And making it back, my buddy did kill his best buck to date in there, killed this great big heavy one with these giant backs. And so um, – being out of food for two days, having one of my best friends with me to push to the end of this hunt, um, it, it was just this amazing experience and one of my favorite hunts to date that I was not successful in. And so that was a crazy cool one. Incredible. Um, we really, really appreciate you coming and spending time with us. Uh, you're an extremely busy individual and highly sought after. We want to really, really thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule and taking uh, the time away from your family and all your other endeavors to come down here, speak at our Christian Hunters of America po uh, podcast today and the seminar to, uh, last night. Can you leave our listeners with any parting words? Man, I mean, um, backcountry bow hunting is just the best arena, the the best place to really challenge ourselves and put our passion and 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 I it's just been so fulfilling in my life like taking on these adventures and being able to go on these that I live such a fulfilled life and I I'm so happy like chasing these dreams and ambitions that I have and working hard towards my goals and and it's really made me the man that I am and so like I think it's just embracing it and I think it's it's falling in love with the process not the results like uh you know we we see these these pictures on social media we see guys that are successful uh it's not comparing yourself to those guys it, it we're all on our own journey uh so so it's just like getting in putting in the work and we all have different goals you know and so it, it's being at your spot in your own journey and really embracing that and getting the most out of it but it, it's just so fulfilling uh so thrilling for me that i that i found my thing in life that i absolutely love that's not tied to to monetary gain that's that's not tied to anything but but just true passion like i found it i'm one of the lucky ones you guys are one of the lucky ones we found what we absolutely love in life and i feel like it's what i'm meant to do you know and so uh to find something like that uh i i just uh i feel like i have such a direction in life and and again i'm able to carry like all these lessons i've learned i'm able to carry into my business into being a better husband being a better father and and without bow hunting i don't think i'd i'd be as it's humble or I'd appreciate it as much, but I found my thing in life that I love to do and I've got the support of everybody around me. And and it's just a beautiful thing where I'm so fortunate the position I'm in that I can only wish that for other guys. And and I think it's achievable for anybody. I'm just a blue collar carpenter. Like uh, uh, I wasn't destined for success uh -huh. in, in my wrestling. I, you know, I didn't pay attention in school and get the grades I should. Like I had to learn all these lessons as a guy later in life. But after I've learned them, you know, I've figured out the the type of man I want to be and how I want to carry myself. And, and I've just worked hard to to be able to become that man. We can be anything we want to be. Uh, we can be any man we want to want to be. It's just making those decisions. Like we're getting good at something every day. And whether that's getting good at, at making excuses, not working out, eating poorly, or we're, we're, we're building these habits, these positive habits of working out, of eating right, of being a good father, being a good husband and you just practice this day in day out and pretty soon you're the man you want to become how can uh, <clears throat> excuse me how can anyone uh see your content or follow you what's your instagram or facebook or, or youtube 
Yep. So uh, Instagram's where I'm most active. It's Brian underscore Barney. Uh, we also have an Eastman Elevated page. And you can hear more of this on the, the podcast, Eastman's Elevated. I love doing it. We love getting next level guests on there, having these in-depth conversations about uh, uh, hunting and bow hunting. And so you can find me there. Uh, there's also some uh, some videos out on the Outdoor Channel on YouTube. Uh, you search Eastman's Hunting TV, and it's pretty much all done through Eastman's. They're a great company. I've been partnered with them for years and love those guys and so uh yeah that's where you can find me mike you want to end us in prayer sure how we do it all right all right lord god in heaven we just uh we love you lord we thank you lord for all these amazing opportunities lord that uh that you have given us lord through the outdoors and we know that you instilled this passion within all of our hearts and our minds lords that gives us this 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 in-depth knowledge of your creation, Lord, through hunting and bow hunting and chasing of elk, as, as we've talked about today, Lord, we just ask that you would uh, bless uh, Brian, Lord, and his travels, Lord, his family, Lord, and we know that as he does a lot of these backcountry adventures, Lord, that your hand is upon him and gives him complete protection, Lord, and I just ask that you would just constantly watch over him year in and year out, Lord, as he is pursuing his passion, Lord, his dreams and his goals and his motivation. And also, Lord, I also want to just thank you, Lord, for instilling him the passion of a family and being the head of the household. And I just ask you to bless him. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Christian Hunters of America podcast. If you have any prayer requests, or you require any information, please look us up on christianhuntersofamerica.org or you can reach us on Facebook or Instagram under Christian Hunters of America.